Well, it's good to be with you. I was here last year when Kevin took his extended vacation. I'll say it's an extended vacation. Three weeks is slightly obnoxious, but I'm allowed to say that about Kevin. If this is being recorded, he'll hear it. It's good to be with you. It really is. It's great to be uh, sharing the platform with my brother Mike today, one of my longest and oldest friends, and I'm thankful for that. As I come to you today, well, I should also say I bring greetings from Affirmation Church, and uh, Justin is down there preaching for me today and filling the spot, so I'm thankful for him, and and, uh, greetings to you from Affirmation Church. As I come to you today, I'm coming, and I want us to consider what was our New Testament reading taken from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12. Maybe we can have in our mind the whole story. It goes on a little bit further to seek God's dealings with Herod. I suppose we'll mention that at the very end. The question I have as we begin is to ask you whether or not you've ever been flummoxed by God's providence. Have you ever thought you've had the script? You knew what God was doing. It seemed to all make sense. And then where you, prepared, where you were prepared to hang a right, God took a hard left. I must say, as you heard Mike give the hard announcement today, I, I do appreciate on Joseph and Ashley's behalf your prayers for them and for little Jaden. Got the call last night at 2 a.m. that the baby had died. He had been suffering with an infection all week, and they thought from time to time they had it. Even last night, Joseph and Ashley returned to the Ronald McDonald house. They thought that things were relatively stable, and no sooner did they walk in their room that they got the call that they had to come back immediately. And, and when they came back, um, it, it went from there. And I have to admit that throughout that process, um, <laughs> I thought I was tracking. I, I, I thought I was tracking where the Lord was going. We were praying. So many people were praying, and intensely. It was great to hear the students at Chapel Field I. I hate that many of them are going to find out on Facebook today. But as we begin our classes in prayer, no matter what student I asked to pray, they'd pray for the class, and, and then they'd all pray for Joseph and Ashley and Jaden. And the Lord was doing amazing things. The fact that Ashley had the baby at all and that he survived the birth. I remember being in the room before the delivery. Christina and I were there, and the doctor said, look, if you go today, it's a 5% chance. If you can just get to next week, it'll be a 50% chance. And Jaden was born alive, survived the birth, got down to Westchester. I remember getting there where you have one-on-one nurse care, 24-7, just one nurse dedicated to that baby. I thought, wow, this is awesome. You know, you're at Westchester Medical. It's an amazing place. And they were on this roller coaster where there was times of great highs and things were going very well. And then they'd get a call and the doctors would say, look, we don't think he's going to survive this. And the prayer chain would start up and everybody would be praying and and. Later that day, we'd get a call from Joseph. Praise God, everything turned around. The doctors would say to him, whoever you have praying for you, tell them to keep praying. You know? It's an amazing witness. And then it happened again, and then it happened again, and then it happened again. And I said, okay, Lord, you're keeping us on our knees. You tell us to come before you for our daily bread. You're calling us to come before you for, for your daily work here. And you're doing, you're doing amazing work. And then it spirals and the baby dies. And you're like, what the heck? It makes no sense. Flummoxed by God's providence. It's a dangerous thing to try to read God's providence. It's dangerous. To read the tea leaves, to read the signs and say, I know where this train is going. Most times you cannot do the math. And you have no idea what God is doing. 
I'm sure all of us can answer the question, yes, we've all been flummoxed by God's providence. We all thought we knew what he was doing and then end up scratching our heads, wondering why he went off our script. Maybe we've been like, I'm sure, Ashley and Joseph feel today. Maybe at times we, like David in Psalm 22, have cried out to the Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thought you were with me. You were answering the prayers, and now it seems as if my prayers bounce off the ceiling and come back and hit me. If we, haven't, if we say we haven't felt that, I think we're not being honest. We've all felt it. Well, that brings me to the book of Acts. Imagine being the early church. You think you're understanding. I mean, the church is growing. It starts, of course, with just 11. There's 11 guys who are barely faithful. They're hanging in there. They're in the upper room. They can't make sense of anything. Their heads are spinning. They don't know what's going on. But the risen Lord Jesus Christ appears to them and, and then spends 40 days teaching them and then commissions them to go, tells them to wait, wait for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to give you power. And when the Holy Spirit comes to the upper room, there's 120 there, and they receive the Spirit, and boom, out they go, and they're proclaiming. And lo and behold, the church is growing, which is an astounding thing. Think about that. Think about taking this message into Jerusalem and preaching and having people believe, and the church is growing by the thousands, we're told. And then, eventually, it's going to head out into Gentile lands. And imagine bringing that message into the Roman world. You're going to have any converts? You're going to bring the message about some Jewish rabbi in a backwater town who was crucified as a criminal? But don't worry, he's Lord of all. And we should all bow before him. That message is going to get any traction in the Roman Empire? But lo and behold, it does. By the gift of the Spirit, it does. And the church is growing by the thousands, we're told. And I imagine... That as that message is proclaimed, which if you boil down the message of the early church, and many of them would later die for this message, it was essentially Christ is Lord. Even over Caesar, Christ is Lord of all. That message, by God's grace, did find traction and begin to grow the early church. But think about what they must have believed. They bought the message that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. As he commissioned his disciples, he told them frankly who he was. I am the one who has all authority. This is what he says in in Matthew 28 as he's giving the Great Commission. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go into all nations. Go because go knowing that the one who sends you is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And then at the end of the Great Commission, he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Who is with you? The one who has all authority, not most authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. And lo, I am with you to the end of the age in the calling, in the commission that I'm sending you out to do. Well, what would you expect if this one is with you? You're going to go proclaiming his message. You're going to go out heralding his kingdom. You would expect every valley will be raised. Every mountain will be flattened. Every hurdle removed out of the way. This should be smooth sailing. We should proclaim it and people will believe. Somebody resists, they're cast out of the way. You wouldn't be unreasonable for thinking this. And then the apostles get arrested. And they get out. And then Stephen gets executed for this message, for proclaiming this Savior, 
for proclaiming this Lord, commissioned by this Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and earth, he goes forth to proclaim it. Stephen, a courageous man. What a faithful servant, one of our first deacons who says, yep, I'll take the call. Roll up my sleeves. I want to serve widows and orphans. Make sure they have food for the gatherings. Here's a courageous and a faithful man. When he's challenged and when he's put to it, he stands in, the front of, in front of all the authorities there in Jerusalem. And he preaches that faithful message of Acts chapter 7. A long message in which he goes right after them. You crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, but God has raised him and he is Lord of all. And they stone him for this. And you're thinking, no. No, the Lord wouldn't let them stone Stephen. We, 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 we could see a bright future for Stephen. Stephen's going to be a leader within the church. And they executed him? What the heck? What is God doing? Stephen could have been so useful within the kingdom. Certainly they have to begin to ask, what about us? And we'll see. Luke will deal with this. Paul himself will have to deal with this. It's a question. As Paul planted his churches around Turkey, this was a major question because while he's planting churches, proclaiming Christ as Lord, they're seeing him being chased out for his life. They're seeing him dragged out of town and stoned and left for dead. (laughs) You talk about growth in the church, a message getting root and and having traction. It's one thing, the message is so hard to believe, but then when the guy who's proclaiming it's being stoned and left outside the city to die, yeah, sign me up. It's hard stuff. What is the Lord doing? Well, Luke, in part, in the book of Acts, is teaching the early church what he's doing. Luke, in the book of Acts, is giving the church its story. Luke is giving the early church the story that it's part of and is trying to teach the early church by teaching Theophilus, the man to whom he writes Luke and now the book of Acts. And in telling the story, he's training them. He's saying, look, this is what you ought to expect. You've got to know what story you're in. He's not going to interpret every act of providence, but what he is going to say is you've got to know the narrative arc that you were in here as the people of God and as the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, he's setting the expectations for the church. Because if you get that wrong, you get everything wrong. Right? This is the problem with the prosperity gospel, right? It gets the whole narrative arc wrong. And therefore, it gets everything wrong. Think about the disciples before Jesus sends the Spirit, where then they begin to, the, the, the scales, if you will, fall off their eyes. Remember Peter when Jesus gave him the narrative arc. Hey, Peter, well done. I'm, I, I, you're right. God, my Father, must have revealed this to you. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well done, Peter. And as such, I'm going to have to be turned over to the authorities, and I'm going to be abused, and I'm going to be uh, uh, taken, I'm going to be executed, and on the third day I'll rise again. And Peter's like, no. No, it won't be. Imagine saying no to Jesus. Peter tries it. Jesus calls him Satan. But Peter's got the whole narrative arc wrong. He just completely missed the narrative and doesn't know what story he's in. And that's why when it all goes down, he denies. You get the narrative wrong, you're bound to lose your faith when the trials come. James and John, these sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, Oh, what men they are. Jesus is walking on his way to Jerusalem. They're with the 12, and they decide in the, in the gospel reading today, let's scurry up, huh? get Jesus' ear. Well, we got him one-on-one. They scurry up there, and like little children, they ask Jesus, 
We're going to ask you for something, and we just want you to say yes without even knowing what it is. We want you to give us whatever we ask for. Will you do it? And she says, why don't you tell me what you want? Why don't you just tell me what you're asking for? And they say, when you get to your place of glory, we can tell we're on our way to glory. We're heading toward Jerusalem. In John's version, we know he's going to say, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. We, we kind of get a sense of where this train is going. We know we're going to hang a hard right to glory. And when we get there, do you think we brothers could sit at your right hand and at your left hand? And Jesus says to them, you have no idea what you're asking for. You have no idea where this train's going. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And you know what cup he's about to drink. Because he's in the garden and he says, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. He says to them in this murky way, they do not know. They are clearly not tracking with him. Because he says, are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And these meatheads say, yeah. Yeah. Completely clueless. No idea where this train is going. They're ready for that thing to take a hard right, and it takes a hard left to the cross. And Jesus takes the time there in Mark 10 to try to explain to them, do you know what glory looks like, guys? You don't ascend to glory in this story. You descend. You descend to servanthood. You descend to the cross, and through that you're glorified. Jesus will wear a crown, but it will be a crown of thorns. He will take a throne, but it will be a cross. He'll have a banner of Jesus, King of the Jews, but it will be nailed above his head. They got the whole narrative arc wrong. And that's what rocks your world when you can't read and you're flummoxed by God's providence. Now, Mike read our text this morning in Acts chapter 12. It seems like a pretty straightforward text. It's a historian doing his job. It's just giving the facts, man. James, it starts very jarringly. James is executed. James, one of the sons of thunder. One of the apostles is executed by Herod. There's no introduction here. It's just like, and he had James and he executed him. And the people went crazy. So he decided to one-up it. He said, wow, I got a standing ovation for that. So he decides to go after a bigger fish and he arrests Peter. And Peter is amazingly delivered. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful story and a story of a miracle. It seems pretty straightforward. It's the facts of the story. But for those who have ears to hear, something else is going on here. Luke, in the book of Acts, and in this story in particular, but of course in all his stories, is teaching us something. He's not just giving us the facts. He's giving us a lesson in the facts. He's giving us the facts in such a way that we begin to catch on, that we begin to get our understanding of our narrative arc, that we begin to understand what story we're in. And what Luke is teaching the early church, what he's teaching Theophilus, what he's teaching us, is that we are in the Christ story. That we are walking the path of the Lord Jesus Christ, who called us, by the way, to follow in his steps. Pick up your cross and follow me. And Luke is telling the story, this back-to-back story of James and then Peter, James and his execution, Peter and his deliverance, to give us the Christ story and to say, brothers and sisters, this is what we are to expect. Two things he gives us. One, the calling of the church, and two, the hope of the church. Of course, in these two characters, in James and in Peter. What is the calling of the church In part, at least in this text, what is Luke teaching us in Acts chapter 12 as we see James taken and now executed? We've already seen Stephen. 
The calling of the church, Luke is saying, is to suffer. The calling of the church is to be persecuted for Christ's sake. See, that's what they couldn't, they weren't tracking. They, right, to glory. Our, we're king's kids, man. We're, it, we're, we're, our, our God is Lord of all. All authority in heaven and earth. And Luke is saying, your calling is to suffer. Your calling is to endure persecution. Jesus himself, of course, said this, but they didn't have ears to hear. They kept thinking he must be talking in riddles. He must be talking in mysteries. When in the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you. Be exceedingly glad. Like, what does that mean? You can see the disciples powwowing and going, so what do you think that means? Without ever thinking, maybe it means when you're persecuted for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. They didn't know the narrative, but Luke is giving it to us. The calling of the church is to suffer. Of course, it's more than that. It's not just blind, empty suffering. Oh, no. It's suffering that's filled with power. Because the church at the beginning of Acts is called to be a witness. You will be my witness. When the Spirit comes upon you, he will empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and out to the outermost parts of the world. And that mission of the church still goes on today. But it will be a suffering witness. It will be a suffering witness. Remember in the book of Revelation, and you have no excuses. I know you had many weeks of Revelation with Pastor Kevin. Remember in the glorious book of Revelation, which is so important for this because the book of Revelation, maybe more than any other book, is so powerful, if rightly understood, to help shape your understanding of the story you're in. It helps you recalibrate and understand the characters in the narrative that we're living in. But you'll remember in the book of Revelation, what do the saints do? This grand army of the people of God dressed in white, the 144,000 singing praises to God. You know what it says? They follow the lamb wherever he goes. And the book of Revelation is a hard book because in that book, the church does suffer under the sovereign will of God. But that suffering is a power-filled suffering. It's a suffering that has the power to conquer the beast and to spread the gospel message throughout the world. Our text is jarring. James is executed. Peter's arrested. But Luke is telling us this is not an anomaly. Even apostles will suffer. In fact, they will all suffer. And he's saying, church, this is your vocation. Now, we know this is easy for us to forget in the comfortable West. It would not have been hard for these people to understand. They're seeing it happening around him. Now, we know, we know tensions are growing even within our own country. We know that. And that's perhaps why a text like this is even so important for us. We better understand the arc, the narrative arc that we're in. We forget sometimes that we are at spiritual war. Like, that's why Paul says, you got to get up and put armor on every day. You better have a sword in your hand when you walk out that door to go to work. I've just been challenging my students, particularly my sophomores. Emma's here. I saw Emma Pedrosa somewhere. She knows. I've been challenging my sophomores. They better have daggers in their hands. Do they have scripture in their soul? Do they have it in their minds? Do we eat and drink the scriptures so that when these challenges face us, we have weapons to grab? They're right in our heart. I don't have to have a book to go searching for them. I have them because you need them. Because this is the battle we're in. We're up against principalities and powers. And we feel it within our culture. But then again, we live in a culture that has been bequeathed to us by faithful men and women from ages past who did suffer for the gospel. 
And the Lord did bless it, and we end up with this glorious Western tradition and a glorious Western culture in which we've been able to be so at peace, and a culture was like momentum going along with us for the spread of the gospel, that we kind of buy the narrative, it'll just happen. It'll just happen. Luke says, no. No, it won't. It will happen through the suffering witness of the church. Did you hear when Mike read the Old Testament reading today from Deuteronomy 7? A picture, an Old Testament picture of what we're to do as we storm into the land, the new creation that Christ has achieved through his death and resurrection. We're like to tear down altars and break them to pieces. Nations don't like it when you do that. Nations don't like it when you show up and start smashing their altars. Paul picks up that theme in 2 Corinthians where he says, brothers and sisters, you've got to go to war and take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Tear down strongholds and every argument and every pretense of man that props itself up against the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do that, they will hate you. You better have a sword. You better have armor. This is the story we're in. And the early church was forced to deal with it. And it raised all kinds of questions. So that, again, as Paul went around preaching the gospel, and then the apostle Paul's being stoned, lowered out of windows by baskets, running for his life. And these young churches are going, oh, what kind of story did we just get ourselves into? Paul has to circle back around to those churches. And in chapter 14, I believe it's to the church at Iconium. He says, brothers and sisters, you need to understand. This is not an anomaly. In fact, he says, it is through much suffering. It is through much affliction that you must enter the kingdom. This is the narrow way. This is the hard way that leads to life. It's the way of Christ. Jesus himself said it. Pick up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow me. If you lose your life, you will save it. But if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. You want the easy way, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and the gospels, you will save it. In John 15, he told them, they will hate you. They hated me, they will hate you. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. He said it so clearly. But again, they didn't have ears to hear. Certainly not. Not if we're with you. We need to know our story. Luke is telling us that the mission of the church is to suffer for the sake of the gospel. But he is also telling them that that suffering is underneath the sovereignty and the sovereign hand of God. It's not just that suffering is happening and we have to endure it. It's that this is God's will for his church. It's not accidental, but rather it is his purpose. Let's face it, James is executed, but Peter's freed. God obviously could have freed James. And chose not to. Don't ask me why. I'm not given the details. But what that tells me is that James' suffering is under God's sovereignty. And I don't understand it, but it's that sovereign God that ordained it. While Stephen was being martyred, Jesus stood. Jesus witnesses it, and Jesus stands to receive Peter and to vindicate, excuse me, uh, Stephen, and to vindicate him. God is sovereign over this. In fact, in our very text, uh, excuse me, in our uh, gospel reading in Mark chapter 10, When James says, can I sit at your left hand when you come into glory? And Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup I'm going to drink? And he says, yes. Jesus says, you will, but not yet. Our text is where he drinks the cup. Not the cup Jesus drank, of course, because he does not drink the full cup of God's wrath, but he does drink the cup of death. And even though Peter's delivered, his day is coming too. In 60 AD, under the reign of Nero, Peter himself 
will be executed. This is under the sovereign hand of God. And God is not building his church in spite of our suffering, but he's actually building it in and through the suffering of the church. Do you know, have you reckoned with this? Have we, have I? Do we know the narrative that we're part of? Are we ready for that? Well, Luke is also telling us something else. He's not just telling us the calling of the church, but he's also declaring to us the hope of the church. And of course, we see this in the deliverance of Peter. It, it's, it's not deliverance. It's interesting, right? I think that in, in God's providence, we do get this where you have the death of James and then the deliverance of Peter. As, as if to mimic the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Christ, so also his body. As Christ, so also the church. And Luke is declaring to us, I don't care what the suffering is. It's not final. Yes, God does ordain for his church to suffer and to be a suffering witness, but suffering will not ever have the last word. The story of James and Peter are back to back and providing us the whole story. The church will suffer, but it will also be delivered. And Luke tells the story of Peter in such a way, if you have ears to hear, I believe, to have all these little echoes of Christ. Maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't. Peter's locked up with guards at the gate. Our mind can go. I think Luke wants it to go to Jesus, who is locked up tight in the grave, with guards posted right outside the grave. And the grave is locked up tight. The stone rolled over it. But then an angel shows up and raises Peter up. Right? He's sleeping. And the angel raises him up and says, let's get out of here. Rolls the stone away. Let's him walk out right underneath the noses of the guards. The guards have no clue what's going on, just like the guards who are there guarding Jesus' tomb. And we know angels are sitting there afterwards asking the women, who are you looking for? As if the angels here open the gates and just let Jesus out. Peter, then like Jesus, comes to Mary. Of course, it's not the same Mary. But again, it's an illusion. It's an echo. Peter runs to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. And a woman comes and meets him. His first encounters with a woman. Not Mary this time, but now Rhoda. And Rhoda's so excited, she runs back to tell the men who are like, nah, can't be. Have you heard that story before? <laughs> this, this is the story of Jesus, right? Who is raised from the dead as the angel helps him, brings him out. The, the stone is rolled away, run under the noses of the guards, taken, in, encountered by the woman who runs then to the men who says, Jesus is, is alive. And they go, no, it can't be. And Luke is telling this story in such a way as to say, as with Christ, so also with his church. The church will suffer indeed, but as Christ was raised from the dead, as Christ was delivered by the mighty outstretched hand of God, so also will the church. Luke is encouraging the church. The gates cannot hold you. Or as Jesus said, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the growth of the church. The grave cannot hold you. It's not like, well, James gets delivered, but Peter doesn't. Peter's going to die too. The point is that the grave can't even hold James, nor can it hold little Jaden. Matter of fact, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church or against the people of God. God will deliver his saints. That's the narrative arc we're in. And that's what then allows us to be faithful. That's what allows us to be Stephen's. That's what allows us to be courageous because we know the gates can't hold us. 
As he delivered the Lord Jesus Christ, so he will deliver his saints. The martyrs in the book of Revelation cry out to God, when are you going to do it? And he doesn't say, I don't know if I will. He says, wait a little longer. It's coming. It's coming. And that is the word to the church. Be faithful. Endure. Know the story you're in. It's not a wish. It's not a pipe dream. It's a certainty. As it happened to Christ, so also will it happen to his church. God will deliver his saints and he will destroy his enemies. You heard it again in the text that Mike read. God will crush those who hate him. He will repay them to their face. Pharaoh resists the Lord. The Lord does allow for a time his people to suffer under the hand of Pharaoh. It's his will that it happens for a certain number of years. But when the Lord's will is fulfilled, it's over. Not one instant longer does the Lord allow it than he has ordained. And when the time comes, his people just walk out. And Pharaoh ends up at the bottom of the Red Sea. Herod can arrest James, kill James, arrest Peter, plan to kill him. And Peter, when it's the Lord's time, Peter walks right out under the noses of the guards and he is delivered. And do you know how the story ends with old Herod? He's eaten by worms. The Lord humiliates him. Herod, who thinks he's this mighty power, they, people claim of him. Read the end of the text. He he's actually gives this amazing oration, we're told. And the people are just, ah, you know, oh, Herod. And they actually say, that's the voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod receives that praise, and the Lord flattens him. When Herod's time is up, the Lord delivers his saints, and he destroys his enemies. And Herod dies, and he's eaten by worms. And when you read the book of Revelation, you see what happens to our enemy. You know how the glorious book of Revelation ends. Satan and the beast, and then best of all, death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. All who would oppose the Lord and his anointed, Psalm 2, will be dashed to pieces with a rod of iron like jars of clay in the Lord's time. But that time will come. It's not a wish It's a certainty. Members and friends of Westminster Church, I ask you, do you know what story you're in? Because if you get the narrative wrong, if you don't get it in your bones, then trials will come, either individually, like they are for Ashley and Joseph today on a personal level, or they will come for the church, culturally speaking, where we will have to endure persecution, and we won't know what to do. My prayer for Ashley and Joseph, and I appreciate this, we had a time of prayer with our faculty throughout this time. One of our faculty members prayed, and I thought it was a wonderful prayer, asking the Lord to guard their hearts. Guard their hearts from the evil one. Who will come and whisper in their ear that God has abandoned them, that God has failed them, that God did not hear their prayers. It's the same thing we might wonder when we go through our trials. And I thought it was a wonderful prayer to ask the Lord to protect their hearts, to guard them, help them to know the story they're in. This is a cursed age we live in. It's an age of brokenness. But to know the hope of the resurrection, that death is not ever the last word, that indeed God will heal all our diseases, Psalm 103, if not in this life, then in the age to come, indeed, by the resurrection. Do you know the story that you're in? I charge you to know it. Know your calling. And know the glorious hope that is ours in Christ. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, indeed, you have called us to walk in the path that was blazed by our Savior. One in which now nothing can ultimately harm us. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. But Father, we confess that we're weak. We confess, as the hymn writer says, our hearts are prone to wander. We don't just pray for Ashley and Joseph today, though we do. Father, embrace them in your strength. Guard their hearts from the evil one who will whisper and slander your name. But Father, we pray for us too. We pray that you would be with us in our trials. We pray that you would be with us as we attempt to stand faithfully and courageously within our culture, a culture that is growing more and more hostile toward the faith. Lord, may we not be surprised by it. May we know the story we're in. And may we have the courage to stand because we know that in Christ we are delivered. In Christ the gates cannot hold. In Christ we are free. Strengthen us to that and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.